I kind of had another, I had a question, more, not a pretty simple um, education in Singapore question, but that's kind of going away, that's going back to an older topic. I don't know, Takashi, you had another question. No, I, okay. I don't have any, uh, I don't have any question at the moment. Okay. Because um, I'm really like, I remember learning about Singapore uh, language in Singapore a long time ago because yeah, like Singapore is a very interesting linguistic landscape and how uh, yeah Singapore the institutions of Singapore sort of promote multilingualism and things like that and um, I remember hearing stereotypes from from other people from Asia about how good uh, Singaporean English is like Singapore Singaporeans they speak really good English compared to say people like people who learn English in China or even people who learn English in, in Japan. Uh, English in, in Singapore is like pretty, it's, it's um, they, I guess they, they just have good accents or I'm not, I'm not sure how you'd explain it, but this is what people from, people from, uh, from other parts of Asia have told me, say like Taiwan, like Singaporeans speak very, very, um, I guess very standard English, like very, yeah. Um, and, um, and at the same time, they're also very good at promoting multilingualism. So as like, as you said, like every, uh, every sort of ethnic group or racial, racial group sort of also learns their, their own language, uh, in school, like the, the Chinese, they, they have English classes, but then they also have their Chinese classes. The Indians have their the same English classes, but then they also have their their Tamil classes, and um, so from from my just just from this very basic information that I got, I, I I had the impression that language education in particular is really is really exceptional in in Singapore, um, and uh, they've been able to pull off like bilingualism pretty well because you know all of these people are really good at english and also pretty good at like their 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 ethnic language you know whatever whatever it, the government decides it to be so i i've thought i mean i'm not sure and i'm not sure exactly what they're doing i'm not sure exactly how they're teaching these languages like what the structure of their education system is but whatever it is, it sounds like a really good model to implement in other countries. So, and so I've always thought like here, definitely here in California, where we have um, we have a, a huge Hispanic population, 30% of the whole state, over 30% of the whole state is Hispanic. Uh, like something like that would be really good here where, um, where people in our state can, you know, they learn English, but then they also learn another language uh, I don't know how, however early they must learn it uh, in order to like to successfully communicate in both, right? Like um, I know like New Mexico has has two official languages, uh, Spanish, including including English. Um, I think I don't remember if Louisiana also has like French as its as a as a second official language. But I've always thought of something like that, like like that would be something really, it sounds like something really good to implement like here too. Um, and now you're, and uh, from this, from our conversation, 
now now I've, I'm hearing from you that like they're actually reconsidering like the structure of the the model of what they're doing now. So I'm so I, I guess uh, my question is like like how do you what what exactly is what do you know of that model, and uh, what exactly are people questioning about it um, with regards to like language education, and then also to uh, I guess other elements of it. Um, do people say that there's there are good, do people recognize that there are good things about it and those are the things they want to keep or do they really want to transition to something else? Yeah, the, so this is a complicated question yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. in part because, um, in part because there's a lot of uh, kind of perceptions about the English um, that, I mean, I've also had, I've had, expats who are like studying in Singapore who have told me that they think that the English spoken by Singaporeans isn't very good at the same time. Um, so there's people, I think people have a lot of different perceptions. For me, I think, I mean, I think, I mean, comparatively to a lot of other, like I could, have, I could very well imagine why someone from Taiwan or maybe even someone from maybe like South Korea, which I think is another place where a lot of um, students study English throughout uh, a large portion of their uh, schooling. Um, would say that, in, I mean, Singaporeans speak very, pretty good English because it's the primary spoken, uh, it's like pretty much the de facto language. Um, but then it starts to get complicated because there's a lot of perceptions about the mother tongues uh, that's some, what most students are learning as secondary languages, um, not being spoken as well as it should be. So I think I've heard a lot of anxieties um, that like Chinese Singaporeans can't supposedly, uh, anxieties about them not being able to speak uh, good enough Mandarin in order to communicate with um, Chinese nationals, for example. Um, and these kinds of uh, anxieties about this or anxieties about like, you know, Malay students who don't, maybe they speak English at home. Um, and so they're relying on uh, their Malay education in school in order to get uh, their Malay training. Um, and there's like the older generations are like, the Malay language, like the language they're learning isn't up to par, obviously compared to like our generation where we learned it at home maybe, um, as well as at school. So they're, there's a lot of uh, ambivalency, I think, within Singapore about this uh, language training system, but I think most people accept it as a practical necessity um, that like English needs to be the primary language and the language of education. Um, so I don't know that much about what like actually goes on in the school on a day-to-day -day level. Um, I think starting in primary, like primary one, you start learning your uh, mother tongue and then I think there are levels so everyone's learning their mother tongue at the basic level but then there's also a higher I think it's called a higher mother tongue level <laughs> um, which is um, like people the students that show particular aptitude or maybe they've been speaking their mother tongue and English at home and so they're able to keep up in both languages um, in a formal educational environment 
And so maybe you'll do advanced level like language training in your mother tongue um, as well, if you want to. Um, and then if you do the higher mother tongue training, then you can also get out of, um, you can get out of having to take the O level for your mother tongue. That's another thing you have to take tests on your mother tongue language um, throughout the, this entire thing as well. Um, so that's another like credentialing and credential dodging credential. I don't know. It gets kind of, it gets pretty complicated. I got very confused about the whole system <laughs> during, while looking things up. Um, but I think that's, it's, it's hard for me because I don't know what like actually goes on in the classrooms that's making this. I do think it's a relatively successful model compared to like, obviously it's kind of a mess <laughs> in places like California, making sure, um, making sure that uh, people, if they do want multiple languages or kind of a bilingual education, it, um, it doesn't work as well here as it does there. Although I do think people there will say there are like very particular issues with their system as well. Yeah, I would imagine, I feel like the US, I mean, it's, it's a much bigger country and you know, there's 50 states and I feel like each state has their own uh, regulations and rules about the languages. Um, I know, at least in California, I've started to see more dual immersion programs where starting at kindergarten, kids could uh, enter school with like two languages because there's Spanish dual immersion. So they'll learn Spanish and English. There's also been a rise of like Mandarin and English and, you know, kids will learn it. But I, I also feel like there's a lottery system in that, at least in the U.S. And only like a certain few will get in. Not everyone is able to get into that program. And it tends to be in a more privileged area. Obviously, like there's a lot of uh, income gaps in different neighborhoods and different forms of school and education that the kids are going to receive based on the community where you live. So, yeah, I feel like it's, it's going to be a, a huge challenge already there just because of that, the huge income gap and already the inequality and inequity just within the different neighborhoods. Yeah, and in Fresno, we have uh, Hmong immersion schools. Um, yeah, uh, which is kind of which is kind of interesting, and uh, I'm not yeah I'm not sure if I'm not sure if uh, if the enrollment in the Hmong language immersion school is uh, based on the lottery system. I'm not sure, but I do know that not all the students that are enrolled in it are Hmong. There are some that are like like Hispanic or Latino. And I attended one of these classes and it was really cool seeing like this, this, uh, this little girl who was probably like six in an elementary school class. And she was like with all these like Hmong kids and they're all learning Hmong together. Yeah. Which is like, I don't know where she's going to use that language other than like, you know, around like certain neighborhoods in Fresno and, and Minneapolis. But <laughs> like, I don't know. It seems kind of cool for me. It's like a, for me, it's a really interesting model. Cause like as a person who studies languages and, like I'm really, I am interested in language preservation and uh, that's why I think whatever Singapore is doing, like that would be a good model for that. Or, I mean, assuming it's, a, assuming it's success, like it, it sounds like what they're doing is, is pretty good. And maybe that can be implemented in other places. Like that's, that's something that, that would be very desirable for me at least as a person with an interest in 
retaining that kind of heritage, regional and local heritage in certain places. I guess, how would you, how would you, would you want them to be taking classes from like primary one in this other language? So it, I think in the U.S., um, there's been a lot of anti, like, anti-second language learning. And so most of the requirements, like a lot of states have requirements, but they're only like, I only had to do, in Florida, I only had to do, start doing a second language starting in high school. Hmm. And I think the, the big difference in Singapore is that like, you start working on the second, on the second language, um, you know, from primary one. So basically everyone has to be bilingual um, starting from primary one. So would you, would you be in favor of like a system like that where everyone like implemented in schools all across the US, people have to do two languages starting in elementary school? I think that would be the big difference um, because I don't think enough schools have formalized like the notion that it would be even advantageous. I think there are probably still schools that are, um, <laughs> or probably aside from obviously the people that would um, find it problematic for whatever uh, problematic reasons. There are probably a lot of people that are still like, you know, learning multiple languages is too difficult and it's going to slow down the education and so on, that kind of um, ideology still. So would you be interested in a system where to make it more normalized learning from primary one? Like it for, I mean, if it's going to be done at all, it should be done at prime, you know, primary at the most primary levels, because like, that's where most, I mean, that's where I guess the, I don't really study acquisition that much, but from the basics of what I do know, like that's when the, the child's brain is most flexible in order to acquire so many languages. I think, uh, I think I read a statistic, in one paper that um, a child can, a child is basically able to learn up to five languages at the same time. About that's probably, that's probably the max, you know? So, and they, so if, as long as they get, as long as they get like 20% of their language input, at least 20% of that is in, in a single language, then they can gain fluent, they'll, they'll gain fluency later on. So like, I think that caps it at about five at the same time. So, yeah, that's, that's kind of, yeah, the early years are really when the, the child's mind is most pliable to, to be able to do that efficiently. Um, doing it later is, is pretty, is pretty um, unhelpful, I think. Unless, unless you are going to, like, enter a career path where, which requires that language. Like, so, for example, I, I learned Spanish in college, and... That's that helped me still. That helped me still because of the type of research I do. But I don't see the benefit of someone learning Spanish too late if they just don't use it, um, because they. Um, it has to be part of their career path because, because otherwise they they probably won't even be very fluent in it unless they're, you know, unless they're using it a lot. So that's that's kind of why I think it's it's important to do it like have it really early. Um, then the question is like how how um, you know what are the logistics of that you know how you know what are the how are we going to get enough teachers to be able to teach those languages at every school right um, 
Yeah, and that that's yeah, that's the that's the tougher question, I think. Yeah. I mean um, at least sorry, Carlos, I don't know if you were done. Oh, go ahead. No. No, like in California I know that there's always a need for teachers, especially like science and you know, math, special education, language teachers too. And if we can't even get that for high school, like it's gonna be even more challenged for elementary, like K through eight, right? And I was also thinking about it too. Uh, a couple of days ago, I, me and my partner went to a park in uh, this part of LA that's like like a lot of liberal whites. And it's, it's like a bunch of uh, white liberals live there and they all have like a Black Lives Matter uh, poster in each house. I just thought that was kind of interesting. And um, when we got to the park, uh, we saw a bunch of like these kids, these white kids, right? But then they all had a Latina caretaker. And I was like, oh, shoot. You know, I thought, at first I was like, oh, are these all like Latino families living here? Like, that's cool, you know? But then it was like, no, it turned out to be like the nanny or the caretakers of these white kids that uh, these liberal parents uh, paid, you know? And what, what I found interesting was that there were so many of them and they were all like speaking Spanish and um, they were just kind of talking to the other nannies and the caretakers in each other in Spanish as they're taking care of these white children. And, you know, these white kids are going to learn Spanish because, you know, these caretakers are going to be in their lives for, for the early years at least, and they're going to obtain that language. So I can also see that some mostly like liberal white parents uh, understand um, that this is kind of like a, a need for their kids. And I think particularly one of the reasons they probably hired these nannies in particular is to, for the kids to uh, retain that language, right? And I also remember in college uh, meeting this white Jewish dude who was able to speak and understand Spanish. And I was just like, oh, did he grow up in a Latino community? And I found out he was like living in a really privileged white community with there's no minorities. I always wonder like how he was able to do it. And I, I found out like he had a, you know, a Latino caretaker that was able to speak Spanish um, to the kid. So I feel like certain families that don't necessarily have immigrant family members are trying to obtain, um, you know, getting this kind of resource for their kids to learn the language in, you know, different ways, such as like hiring a caretaker. I've also seen like Asian nannies, like maybe like a South Korean one so that the kids can learn the language too. But yeah, I don't know. I, I think certain families are trying to do that in different ways. Um, obviously, if you come from like an immigrant family, like for myself or people that I grew up with, um, like everybody was bilingual. Either they knew Spanish and English or they knew like Vietnamese and, you know, English or other, you know. So it just depends on the community. But to have like a formalized system, I think that would be ideal. And I would be supportive of it. But like Carlos mentioned, I think it also has to do with the issues of are we going to have enough teachers? Are there going to be enough resources to do this? Uh, what's going to be the cultural shift? Because not all the parents, uh, white parents are going to be like those liberal white parents, right? There's, you know, a bunch of conservative white parents that might not even want their kids to learn another language or whatnot. Um, I mean, it'd be kind of cool if they all were speaking to each other in like Arabic or Mandarin, you know, <laughs> these conservative white kids in like Appalachia or Midwest all just speaking like a different language but yeah I, I don't know I, I feel like the culture has to shift there ha just has to be more resources for like funding and also like more training for these teachers and yeah there's just a whole lot that needs to be changed <laughs> I think there's like another there's like another level to this all and that um 
it kind of makes it in some ways. I guess maybe not. There's like a there's an added level that if you want to study a different language in like high school, for example, um, or you like want to specialize in that sort of thing, you, basically you're working on. So you have to take your mandatory English classes. You have to take your mother tongue classes, and then you're also like working on a third language. Like, let's say you just happen to be interested in French or German, or maybe like one of your parents has connections, you know, uh, either heritage or just random connections there. Um, so there, there is this. Uh, I think to me already the idea of like two languages is a lot because I was inculcated within <laughs> this <laughs> American within this kind of American system in the South where like you just do two years of Spanish and you don't remember any of it and you move on with your life. Um, but that's also like a thing that students in Singapore have to navigate. Or I think, I think there are a number of Singaporean students who like as children or whatever, they end up living in a, in some other region and then they come back um, in high school and they have to get exceptions to not take their mother tongue <laughs> and to instead take like whatever tongue they were learning <laughs> while, while they were like wherever they actually grew up in or whatever language they were learning. Um, so there, there are like these also other layers of complications. I think, I think the system might not work in the US because there wouldn't be the same. I do think that there is something towards the mother tongue affiliation, this idea that like this is the language um, that was spoken by your ancestors or like a heritage language. Um, and I do think for households that do speak that language at home as well, it, there's like a different quality to that kind of language education where you're learning it in school and you, you can go home and like your parents can also speak it um, to you um, that probably wouldn't exist to the same degree in the U.S. amongst all of us who have been <laughs> speaking English and only English for uh, so long. Where like you'll have, I mean, maybe maybe if the second language is Spanish, it'll be easier. But I'm not even sure what the what the language offerings would be as well. Would be the other question. This is kind of like a side question. Um, I mean, it could be part of it because I usually ask people this. <laughs> like, do you have any uh, book or film recommendations? And it doesn't have to be particularly uh, connected to this topic. It could just be personally, like, you know, uh, are there any book or film recommendations you have? Um, okay. I think the... I really like the film Shirkers. S-H-I-R-K-E-R-S, Shirkers. Um, it's on Netflix. Um, it's by a Singaporean uh, woman who, and it's about her making a film in the 1990s as a teenager. Um, and it's like a kind of comedic, kind of quirky film. Um, because there's there's like an older uh, white man who's like traveling in and out of Singapore or um, it's relatively itinerant and he's like very much helping like these um, Singaporean teenagers make this film and then towards the end at the very last second he like runs off with the film 
um, not towards the end of the film, but like this is the premise of the entire film and like her trying to figure out and recovering the film and recounting the story of the making of the film and all this. I think Shirkers is an interesting movie. Uh, I, yeah. <laughs> uh, I consume a lot of anime. Um, do I have anime recommendations? Uh, I recently watched... What's his name? Uh, Keep Your Hands Off Aizouken. Um Aizouken is E-A-I-Z-O-U-K-E-N. Um, and that's, a, that's also an interesting... <laughs> that's also about teenagers making... Uh, this time they're making an anime altogether. But it's, it's really... It's one of those films that's really well done because it's, it's by like animators making an anime about making anime and so they have all of these quirky little insights and things about it um so it's fun to uh look at for those reasons if you're interested in any of that stuff at all yeah one of my favorite one i've seen recently i haven't watched anime in a while but uh it's on netflix it's called carol and tuesday it's actually the same uh creator from cowboy bebop and they're kind of in the same storyline where it's in the same universe because they kind of use the same currency and they reference certain things. But there's no, like, I, don't, I haven't seen any characters from Cowboy Bebop in that show. But it's a really, mm-hmm. I, thought, I thought it was a very good show because of uh, the way they handle, like, political uh, commentaries, uh, like police violence, um, the freedom of expression and music. It's just about, like, these two teenagers uh they kind of, one of them runs away from home. The other one doesn't know their parents. And they're like very talented in music. And they live in Mars. And like the world is, like the music is created by artificial intelligence. So no one is like creating music on their own. But then those two are able to do it. And they are able to humanize their music. And they become very popular. And uh, it's kind of like, you know, is it better to have technology take over certain aspects of our lives? Or is it better for us to actually be in control? It, it kind of addresses that question. And it goes into a lot of different topics about like police brutality, uh, like politicians, corruptions, and it's only two seasons and it's a very uh, good, uh, quick watch. And like each episode has very fantastic music too. And that's like one of the anime I kind of recommend watching in dub because um, when they sing, they sing in English. So when you watch it in sub, it's kind of weird because they're speaking Japanese and they're singing, it's all in English. Yeah, I'll have to admit that this is mildly embarrassing. I think as a U.S., especially as a U.S.-based anime fan, Cowboy Bebop is like this legendary anime. I think in part because it used to show up on U.S. television like in the early 2000s and like everyone loved it. And it, I mean, it's probably well known and loved, but I think as a kid, I would intentionally not watch it. <laughs> wow. So I still haven't watched Cowboy Bebop. Uh, that one was legendary. Hmm? That's a legendary one. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that one, well, that one too, that one came out during this sort of fad of like space, space frontier, like science fiction, Western style, like old West style, like shoot 'em up animes. Like that around that same time was Trigon and then Outlaw Star. Yeah, and I loved all of those, so I don't know. <laughs> I, I watched Trigun, and I, I loved it, too. And I yeah. did not watch Cowboy Bebop for some reason. <laughs> yeah. it, it's also kind of interesting, the 
the way I, cause I, Kenzo, I don't know how old you are, but like, I remember back in the day, like anime was, wasn't okay. <laughs> anime wasn't a uh, very mainstream back then. Uh, I mean, they, it, you would have like the Dragon Ball, but it was in Spanish channel. So, you know, like I would watch it in Spanish sometimes. <laughs> and then um, since I lived in Japan, like that was kind of like, yeah, like I've seen like Sailor Moon and Dragon Ball and all these shows before I came here because, you know, the U.S. had it like later. But like you would have to go to like to get it on VHS or you, you have to get like a bootleg version at the swap meet, <laughs> you know, because like, you couldn't find it online at that time. Or it was like the dial up and everything was like really slow. Uh, but nowadays, like you just stream it, just go on like Crunchyroll or different streaming services. And, you know, it's it, it was just so it was just so different back then too. like only certain people knew about like a particular anime. I mean, everybody knows about, like, Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh! now, but, you know, like, there were other, like, obscure anime that most people didn't really know about, unless, like, you were really into that culture. Yeah. I think I actually came across Carol on Tuesday, but the basic description of it is just, like, it's a show about music, and I was like, does this have anything to do with, like, because I I think um, the director, who's, like, so the same guy in the company... He also did Samurai Shampoo as well. And so I was like, oh, this guy did like, you know, pretty legendary anime. And then there's like this show, Carol and Tuesday, that I saw that I was like, it just seems about like two women making music. But then you're you're like describing it and it seems like it's, you know, about so many more things or so much deeper than I think the basic this like, you know, show synopsis is making it sound like it's about. Uh, so I think I might actually go and watch that now. <laughs> I was overlooking it before. I was like, is this just like a slice of life about <laughs> like women making music? That might not be my genre, but yeah. Knowing that it's deeper is helpful. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting because like Samurai Shampoo and Cowboy Bebop has more action oriented. And, you know, Karen Tuesday is not really action oriented. You know, I, I, I do kind of wonder if they were trying to target the similar audience. Or if they were trying to go for like a new direction. Well, that's you. That's U.S. marketing for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not very good at describing what's actually going uh, on. Yeah. yeah, I think on Wikipedia, the I'm looking at it now. The the show is just the genre. The show is just tagged as music. Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> What does it mean to have an anime that's just a music anime? Like, you're not even telling me. Like, is it drama? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> yeah, like, I also feel like the dubs in the anime has gotten so much better over the years. Because, um, you know, I think, like, there's, like, these anime community, like, they always debate, is it better to have subs or dubs? Because I, I remember, like, growing up, the dubs in the U.S. were, like, pretty bad. Like, I remember, like, watching the old uh, One Piece from the Four Kids. It was just so bad. Like, I couldn't watch any other dub anymore. So I just stick to, you know, i just always been stuck with subs. And uh, I mean, I can understand it. So, like, it makes sense for me. But I always like to hear, you know, like, the dub version to see how it compares. But, yeah, it's just, like, I, I just feel like a lot of people don't know, like, how bad dub used to be. So Some of my, I have, like, a side research interest in, um, like, subtitling practices because they're like really interesting in Singapore because of the 
the state wants to manage all of the linguistic diversity, but um, they also want to make sure that people who don't speak English as strongly, so a lot of the older generation, um, you know, weren't part of this English mandatory um, edu uh, primary education because the nation is so young and so on. So there's a lot of like language politics around subtitling um, and a lot of like practical things I'm interested in from like a semiotic perspective about subtitling. Um, but anyways, I end up thinking a lot about these kind of um, the use of voice and like dubbing and subtitling and all of these things. But I, that was, a, that was kind of a side note. I have a friend who's watching One Piece right now and I'm just, so uh, she's watched like 300 episodes over the last month and a half <laughs> and still has like 600 more to go to catch up. Um, but I was, I was like looking at videos of the old um, One Piece dub and it starts out the, it starts out each episode with a rap. That was, that was what they did. They had like a black man rapping <laughs> like, here's Luffy and he's a pirate and here's Zoro, he's a samurai. Sanji is cooking, Chopper's doctoring. And I'm like, what, <laughs> why is this happening? But at the same time, they're also like legendary. They're like really good dubs as well, or like dubs that people grew up with. And so they accept. Um, and I think one of my favorite shows that I watched growing up during this era, like the early 2000s with like um, Cartoon Network and like Toonami and all of these things was um, Fully Coley, FLCL. Oh yeah, I remember that one. And like, I've rewatched it a few times and I've, I've only been able to rewatch it in the dub because like, those are the voices I remember. And I, I remember it being a pretty good dub um, from that time period compared to like, of course, the four kids, one piece um, mm. dub which is kind of legendary for tanking the possibility of One Piece being popular in the US. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, in Japan, like, One Piece is, like, the highest-selling uh, manga of all time, like, hands down. And I've been keeping up with the, the manga, too, and it's very good, very good story, very good character development. But a lot of Americans don't really care for the One Piece just because of, of the dud version. But, I mean, it's kind of interesting. It's popular in Latin America and... Uh, I think parts of Europe too, but not just in the, not in the U.S. Yeah, I think there's like different dubbing and subtitling cultures as well. Yeah. It's affected that kind of thing. And they, they took out uh, Sanji's cigarette and it changed into a lollipop. You know, they it changed like minor things like that. It just took out the blood. Uh, they took out like the guns and changed it into like a stick. I don't know. It was just bizarre. Yeah. It was a really... Uh, really legendarily bad um, adaptation or localization, I guess. Oh, sorry, I do, you, sorry, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, I do think that um, the the anime I recommended, Keep Your Hands Off Aizouken, um, that's one of the first times I've ever thought to myself, like actually thought to myself, man, I wish I knew Japanese so I didn't have to, like, watch the subtitled version. <laughs> mm. um, because they do, like, really interesting visual things on the screen. Um, and there's also, like, so there's, like, background noises as well as the audio track, like, the spoken dialogue. Um, and all of these things are happening at once. And this is, like, one of the first times I've ever felt like, <laughs> man, I can't read the subtitles fast enough or well enough to also be watching the visual things that are happening 
because like the animators are like having a field day with this kind of animation. Um, and I think that's one of the few times I've ever actually thought like, man, I wish I knew Japanese. Usually I don't think that. Usually I'm just like, yeah. I can read fast enough that I'm fine with subtitles. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's true. I feel like there were certain anime in Japan that was really popular, but that couldn't be, it didn't really get popularized in the United States because of the cultural differences. Because, you know, there's differences in humor. Was, uh, I think some of them I was thinking about was, I don't know if you guys heard of Crayon, Crayon Shinchan. It, it came out on Adult Swim as something else. I forgot what the name was. I don't know if it was the same name, but they, I think they tried to do it in the U.S., but, you know, I, I think it only lasted a season. In Japan, that's like a cultural phenomenon. A lot, everybody knows about Crayon Shinchan, and I, I watched it as a kid, and it's funny, but I do think the humor is a lot different, and it doesn't really translate that well if you uh, put it into the dub. And even, like, shows like uh, Detective Conan, uh, which was c- called Case Closed, I think, on Adult Swim, that that's a very popular uh, cartoon also in Japan too, and it's just going on for. I think it might be the longest running um, anime uh, so far. Just I mean, it's a lot of fillers, and it just keeps going. Um, I, I kind of stopped watching it because <laughs> it's repetitive. But yeah, there there's like a lot of anime that's so popular in Japan, but it, it just won't work in the U.S. because of the cultural differences and the translation doesn't wouldn't make any sense. I have. Uh... So I guess I have, maybe I have one more, one or two more questions, uh, an anime related question that leads into a question, I guess, back to the original topic. I was going to ask, uh, is anime big in Singapore? And then uh, a follow up to that is uh, um, assuming, assuming anime is, is big in Singapore, that, that, that would speak to the influence of Japanese culture or at least broader Asian culture in Singapore. And then uh, I'm wondering if given, uh, I mean, you mentioned earlier how Singapore is sort of during the Cold War was kind of trying to brand itself as an ally of the West or an ally of, or being neutral at least and being US friendly. But now they're sort of, I guess, looking more towards Asia. I started reading, I started reading this book about um, economics and uh the develop the and international politics and the development of like civilizational poles within international politics and how different countries kind of align themselves with particular um highly influential countries like russia russia china the u.s countries that have a lot of clout basically in the international scene Right. And you have all these like minor countries that sort of end up having to negotiate like their alliances throughout history, depending on what conflict is happening. Um, And I guess um, Singapore is among these countries that at one point sort of aligned itself with uh, what's called the free world, uh, which was basically the anti-communist, the uh, yeah, the anti-communist block of countries like during the cold war but now now that um international conflicts have shifted away from say capitalism versus communism to things like things like um china versus the west versus russia versus the the islamic world um i guess singapore is now 
uh, I'm wondering, I'm wondering where Singapore is, is aligning itself with, according to the book I'm reading, it's sort of aligning itself back with China because it's, uh, it's economy is so, is, um, is sort of developing in a way that it depends a lot on say like trade with China at this point. Like, I don't know how much of its imports and exports are like, I don't know how much of its trade is with China, but I think it's something like 60%. Uh, yeah, 60% of its exports versus imports are like with China. So like the economy depends a lot on like Chinese, uh, Chinese consumption of like their products. So I'm wondering now if, uh, if Singapore is sort of realigning itself, is it, is it, if it's sort of trying to head in the direction of like identifying itself as an Asian country belonging to the, the broader economy of, of like the, of East Asia and Southeast Asia, right? And how that's manifesting, right? Um, yeah, so for example, if like, if anime was like something that was big in Singapore, like that would be like an indicator of that. There's a lot of like consumption of things, of products from like other Asian countries. Yeah. Um, the situation is kind of complicated because I think Singapore always wants to navigate um, so their view is that they make most of their money because they're a trade intermediary and they're also like a relatively neutral safe place for like banking establishments and uh, all of these other like um, I guess high high level knowledge economy kind of things so like banking establishments or research institutes uh, view Singapore as a very nice place because it's a relatively free trade. It's kind of like a international free trade zone, um, hmm. just sitting there in the middle of, um, you know, the link in between India and China, um, like oceanically. And so a lot of Singapore's policy has been also this kind of balancing act of, you know, we don't want to be against anyone, but we don't want to be for anyone but we want everyone to get along because if everyone gets along then it's easier for us to do business with everyone kind of thing um so yeah they they align themselves to the u.s kind of but like not officially really but <laughs> you know <laughs> and i think now there's a lot of um officially there's a lot of like trade going on with china um, but there's also, so I do think there's an ongoing dispute with um, concerning uh, the South China Sea um, that Singapore is in some ways not aligning with um, the People's Republic of China um, position on like, you know, territorial claims and things like this. Um, and I do think Singapore has like allegiance. So Singapore is constantly playing this balancing act with like, other countries within ASEAN, within the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. Um, and a lot of the other countries within ASEAN are, some of them are against, some of them are pro-China. So there's, there's this constant like, you know, balancing out that Singapore um, has to do, like, as you noted, there's, you know, different poles in international relations and Singapore as a relatively small country views its views itself as a small country that needs to play these kind of balancing games. Um, but I think culturally, there has been a large shift back towards, I think, the Asian pole. 
I mentioned earlier that there's like there's a a lot of open like man the the united the people in the United States are not doing too hot, maybe we don't want to you know associate or align ourselves with them um as much anymore um but there has been like even a cultural shift, I think even during the cold war like the so Singapore is like Chinese majority population. I don't have the exact percentages, um, but there's a very significant like Chinese majority population and ethnic slash racial within their racial categorization system. Um, and so, I mean, a lot of the popular culture in Singapore, the television in like the 70s and the 80s was Hong Kong and Taiwan stuff and uh, mainland China, um, mainland Chinese uh, television, film, um, music, music especially, um, is very popular, like was very popular and continues to be very popular in Singapore. Um, I do think, I think anime is pretty big in Singapore. Um, Like there was a whole... I guess, Singaporean otaku scene. And there's also a lot of consumption of South Korean popular culture now as well. Um, so they're, Singapore is a big stop for uh, K-pop groups coming through uh, Southeast Asia, of course, um, as well as like K-dramas and things like that uh, very much do find their way through Singapore now. And I do think there's more, there is like a cultural shift there's an explicit, I think in the 80s, this was popular, but uh, Lee Kuan Yew is kind of the legendary, like kind of founding father guy who remained prime minister for 30 years after independence in Singapore. Not 30, um, but 25 plus years. Um, and in the 1980s, he was very much like, we need to promote Asian values, um, like the common Asian values that we have in Singapore, where maybe 20 years before he was like, we need to modernize and be like the West. <laughs> um, but there was this period of talking about like Asian values, which specifically meant like a, a Chinese Confucian notion of Asian values. And of course, all the, the minority races were like, what about like our classic Malay values? Um, and there's a lot of contention about that. There, there was a lot of contention. And over time, like that kind of rhetoric has been dropped, but recently in um, production and media production, there has been a lot of discussion about, um, you know, Asian storytelling and making Singapore into a hub for Asian storytelling and trying to build these kind of connections with like the Japanese and Korean industries, but also um, around Southeast Asia and rebuilding, I think in some ways rebuilding connections with um, China. I think in the 1990s, they were expecting an exodus of um, Hong Kongers because of the handover um, to China. So they were expecting that, you know, a lot of the Hong Kong film talent might end up coming to Singapore uh, because of that. And that didn't materialize. I think a lot of the Hong Kongers ended up going to like Canada and the US, the ones who did leave. A lot of them stayed, of course, um, instead of Singapore. Um, and I'm I'm starting to pick up on people discussing that again because of the recent developments um, 
in mainland China and Hong Kong, um, and like the full integration of Hong Kong becoming more, um, becoming closer. Um, and so I think people are trying to pick up on that as like, we, we have some affinity with like places like Hong Kong or that were also like former colonies, but also have, you know, these kinds of deeper Asian or longer Asian roots or whatever. I know we're already past the two hour mark. Um, Carlos, I don't know if you had any other questions. No, not, not really. Yeah. Uh, Kenzo, like, do you have any final thoughts for the listeners? Um, no, I don't have any particular final thoughts. Was it, have you ever been on a podcast before? Or I have like, not been on a okay. podcast before. I mean, how, how was this for you? Uh, this was an interesting experience. Um, I was very concerned about not knowing enough, and I thought the topic would be more uh, narrowly defined. So I did a lot of, I did a lot of research about education in Singapore. And so I was actually quite happy that the conversation was much broader and more free willing than uh, I was fearful of. Yeah, sorry. I think we should have explained it earlier because I feel like uh, our podcast is very informal. Uh, most of the time, it's just like a conversation just amongst uh, different people, different groups of people. So, but uh, yeah, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. And yeah, I learned so much about Singapore that I didn't know about previously. Uh, before coming into this conversation thank you so much for having me um it was it was actually a very enjoyable experience <laughs> compared to my anxieties about not knowing enough about the topic yeah uh, if you ever want to join us again in the future uh you can let me know or let carlos know and you know it could just be about any topics too so yeah talk about anime <laughs> anime topic yeah i would i would love that that sounds great cool yeah thanks for thanks for coming kinzel yeah this is, this is pretty good only pretty good <laughs> <laughs> everyone t tells me that my girlfriend tells me that she's like i'm just pretty i was like are you are you like all lives mattering to me i'm not saying only black oh lives matter <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say only, like, who's saying only? <laughs> no. Yeah. Cool, man. Yeah. This was great. Thank you.